Hypocrisy. How does, that, how does it make you feel when you think about that? When, somebody, when someone publicly makes known that they believe in something, that they are you know, passionate to uphold a particular value, an, an ethic or a, a kind of moral standard, what happens when in their lives their behaviour seems to undermine all that they claim to believe? Well, we're all hypocrites, aren't we, to a certain degree? There's a modicum of pretense in all of us. But when someone triumphs a cause, a, a standard, a value, and yet maligns what they proclaim by the way that they live, that, that really does rub against us, doesn't it, and our expectations. We'll remember the MP scandal a few uh, years ago now. That, you know, MPs, they're meant to believe and proclaim fairness, democracy, and all of those type of things. But then many of them were found, weren't they, to be uh, exaggerating some of the claims on their expenses. And the general public, how did they react? It was outrage, wasn't it? And likewise, you get these Premier League footballers or particularly well-known golfers with you know, kind of uh, big, um, heavily sponsored golfers. You, you know the kind of person I'm speaking about. You know, they visit schools and whose public image is all about the family and the well-being of children. When such men are found out that they've been playing around a little bit, a line has been crossed, even in our liberal culture today. When someone claims to have a moral standard, yet their behaviour does not conform to that, well, that is hypocrisy by definition. It's a separation of belief from behaviour. Of course, when when belief and behaviour are brought together, when a belief is held and then lived out in an individual, a community, or a nation, when that happens, we know that that belief is, is therefore a real, authentic belief, don't we, if it, if it is worked out in someone's life. And perhaps this country as a, a nation has never been less hypocritical than the last great war. See, World War II saw this nation, we were on our knees in a sense, but this nation believed in one thing, that to live under Nazi rule was not an option. Uh, they believed their leader, namely Churchill, who said of Hitler and Germany that he would speak readily, that they were truly evil, were his words. And that belief, with great leadership, drove this nation to make innumerable sacrifices. It believed and it acted according to that belief. See, when we believe something, when we truly understand, it is then and then only that we can begin to, be- to live in accordance with those beliefs. Flip it round, just for a moment. Uh, have you ever been in a job where you just can't stand the job, the, the work that you're doing, or the boss that you have to work for, or the co-workers that are placed in the desks around you? Uh, that may never have been you, but I guess we all know someone who's been on a kind of in our workplace or a team who feels that way. They just don't want to be at that kind of workplace. That person may not believe in the boss or the organisation or the co-workers they work with. Is it obvious? Of course it is, as they moan around the office. Often it is. We just can't hold it in. We think we can hide what we believe by putting up a pretense, by accepting a little bit of hypocrisy in our lives. But after a time, it just becomes more and more obvious whether in a relationship or at work or even in a leisure pursuit, if we, tr- if we try to separate what we believe from our behaviour, uh, well, 
in the end, it will kind of eke its way out in our lives. It will become obvious to those around us. In what we believe uh, will be worked out in what we do. And likewise, as Christians, what we believe will be worked out by the way that we live. And vice versa. One theologian put it this way. We cannot profess what we deny or deny what we profess. So I guess with regard to our relationship with God, I, I, we think we, we need to ask ourselves some questions, don't we? Something like this. Do we profess God in word and deny him indeed? Do we like ritual, you know, coming to church, but looking like a Christian, acting like a Christian, but scorn the reality of actually living for Christ in this world? Are we kind of form without power, claims without character, faith without works, as James puts it? Well, this is the very reason that Paul writes to this church in Crete and the leader of that church that uh, Paul had left them, Titus. What they said they believed was not aligned to how they lived that out in their lives. Or at least that was being challenged in the church. Let's look at some of the background details to begin with. So I suggested Paul, uh, just a moment ago, had visited Crete. We see that in chapter 1, verse 5. There's actually no mention in the historical narrative accounts um, of his missionary journeys that he ever visited Crete. But as we read of those in Acts and other places, I don't think those accounts are completely exhaustive. From chapter 1, verse 5, we seem to think he visited Crete and he left Titus there. It seems that Paul had visited sometime in the mid-60s AD. Now he writes to Titus. And he's encouraging him in his ministry amongst the Cretans. Titus himself was a a prolific character. He's one of Paul's converts. He's a Gentile. That means he's not a Jew. And he was a travelling companion of Paul's. And you can read about that in 2 Timothy uh, chapter 2, Galatians chapter 2. And and probably most uh, notably in 2 Corinthians. He's mentioned a number of times throughout the chapters there. 13 times in all in the whole of the New Testament. Uh, But we see here, he's been left by Paul in Crete for a time to teach the church, to support the church. After some time in Crete, he would then be asked to move on. And you can read about that in chapter 3, verse 12 of Titus, as Paul requests to winter with him in Nicopolis. So a little about Paul, a little bit about Titus. What do we know about Crete, though? I guess some of you have holidayed there. Um, It's just uh, the southern part of the Aegean Sea, maybe a little bit into the Mediterranean, south uh, east of Greece, southwest of Turkey. But all we know about Crete as such, and the people here, is found in chapter 1, verse 12. Just cast your eyes down there if you can. It says, even one of our own prophets has said, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. And Paul is using there a saying that is widely recognised from a from a 6th century BC teacher from Crete himself, a man called Epimenides or something like that. Um, And the dishonesty, this kind of triplet of dishonesty, gluttony and laziness of its inhabitants have become proverbial in the area. Paul writes to this church, probably actually a number of little house churches, we can assume, on this island, and he writes to them, To help them believe what is true and then to live that out despite all the pressures we see in chapter 1 verse 12 of the Cretan culture. Now maybe London isn't full of lazy gluttons. I'm not sure. But I guess we'll have a few liars amongst us. 
and maybe even a few evil brutes. The pressures may be different, but I guess the pressures are there, aren't they? The church in Crete was being drawn to separate what they believed by the way that, away from the way that they behaved. And I guess that is a challenge that we all face too. And how do we face that challenge? Well, interestingly, the way that Paul begins um, this letter is by not addressing it directly to begin with, but to address himself, to uh, defend himself before he speaks. He does that in a number of letters, and we're going to look at that now. So we get to our first point, um, the authentic servant apostle. We see that in verse 1, if you like to have a look at that. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. It's interesting here, Paul is aligning himself here with, with some serious greats of the Bible. Uh, Moses and David use this title of themselves, a servant of God. But this is not a title of greatness as you might think of greatness in our culture. It's a title of great humility in a sense. As one who has been bought. One who is owned by God. Directed by God. Paul's a servant of God. But he's also, we see there, an apostle of Jesus Christ. He had, of course, received a unique call from the risen Lord Jesus. A personal call on a road. And you can read of that account in Acts chapter 9. He was commissioned to be one of Christ's sent ones. And that's what the word apostle means. Sent ones. He was equipped by Christ to take the message of the gospel to Judea, Judea, Samaria and the ends of the earth. Fulfilling what had been promised in Acts chapter 1 verse 8. Now, that is what Paul ends up doing. But of course his beginnings were very, very different. And you can read of that in Acts chapter 8 itself where he was the, the persecutor of Christians. But that persecutor of Christians, having met the risen Lord Jesus Christ, becomes the one who takes the message of Christ to the ends of the earth. He's approved by the other apostles on numerous occasions in the, in the book of Acts. And despite his later commissioning, he wasn't one of the original twelve. Um, he goes uh, on as God's servant, taking the saving message of Jesus Christ to so many and suffering so much as he does. It is fascinating. We'll be looking at church leadership uh, uh, next week a little bit more. But uh, as we do, it's interesting, just in this first verse of Titus, we begin to understand what biblical leadership looks like. It's a high, it's a demanding calling. Yes, it is. But it also requires a lowering of oneself. Leadership in a church, I guess it's not like leading a bank or something like that. Leadership in a church is a giving up of oneself, not looking for one's own glory or gain. Literally, the word used here is actually slave. It's being spent for the gospel. I would love to give you scores of illustrations. I'm a big fan of kind of Christian biographies of of missionaries. I'd love to give you kind of loads of illustrations of these missionaries who, who essentially modeled this servant leadership. As they went out into Africa and and Asia and all around the world. They were willing to sacrifice their lives. And many only lived months in places around this world. 
cashing in their lives to serve God who had given them eternal life through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. But time is pressing. So get a biography and read it. They're fantastic. I've got millions. So if you want to borrow them, there's a good library there for you. But let me finish this point by saying this. Paul, the authentic servant of God, apostle of Christ. He writes, of course, guided by the Spirit of God. There's a dual authorship here to any letter in the New Testament. So however difficult we will find perhaps some of what Paul writes in this letter further on, don't forget he speaks as if he speaks for God. There's no difference between uh, the doctrine of Paul and, for example, what Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount, or wherever it may be. Some scholars try to stick a, a wedge between the two, but that's not the case here. It never can be. So Paul gave himself in the service of God. He, if you like, was the real deal. That's what he's saying here. He would later, of course, die as the authentic servant of God. Martyred under Emperor Nero. In a sense, he modelled that his belief would not be compromised by his behaviour. And I quote, A day would come when people would call their dogs Nero and their boys Paul. It's interesting, isn't it? How history remembers a great servant of God, an apostle of Christ, against a tyrannical madman. See, if we clamour for position and status in church leadership, I guess we need to consider, you know, first, what that position really looks like. The church is not a, a great company in the city of London where CEOs rule with a, a, and exercise great power. The highest office of the church underneath Christ is apostle. It's a unique appointment in history, never to be repeated. Yet even in that highest and most lofty position of God's church, what is to be exercised? Humility. Service. Working as someone who is owned by God, possessed by God, doing everything in obedience to him. Paul is the authentic servant of God, apostle of Christ. And he has been appointed to teach, secondly, the authentic Christian faith. You see that in verse 1 again. Paul, a servant of God and apostle of Jesus Christ. What? For. For what? The faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. So Paul, this servant apostle, has been sent for the faith of God's people and the knowledge of the truth that leads to a life. A life that lives out that faith and truth. See, Paul is saying that the purpose of him being an apostle is to serve the church, to help it grow, to nurture them in their faith and knowledge. Why those two then? Why faith and knowledge? In a sense, faith is the same word as belief or trust. So why, you know, it's the same as kind of trust and reason, belief and understanding. They're not often coupled in our culture, are they? Well, contrary to popular opinion and old wives' tales, the Christian faith is a faith based on evidence, reason, understanding, knowledge, as Psalm 9 says, verse 10. Those who know, understand your name, will trust you, will believe in you. What we know of God, what we begin to understand of his character, is the foundation of our faith in him. Christians only trust God because he is trustworthy. We're the ones who've just been bothered to ask the questions. Christians are the ones who've 
dug beyond the cultural presuppositions. Christians are the ones who have used their minds and found out all they can about the truth of God. And then in an educated way, not in a blind way, seeing all the options before them. Christians are the ones who put their faith in God because they've understood him to be faithful. Now that is what that faith um, is speaking of here um, in verse 1. We see that? Uh, Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith. But what is the faith of God's elect? Of course, it's many things, but ultimately... It is faith in the gospel message for the forgiveness of sins bought for us as Jesus died on the cross. But this faith, this trust or belief, only comes on the basis of knowing, understanding the truth about God and his son. And the extraordinary thing I've experienced over years of being a, a church minister is that people who passionately want to put their trust in God... They want to have faith in the one um, of, of God's elect and be one of God's elect, peop- God's elect people. But they, they turn to fallible means. For example, they, just, they turn to an opinion or the wisdom of a friend rather than turning to the infallible word of God. So you go to, I've been to Bible study groups where people never even open their Bibles. Or when they do, it's just kind of a, a passing reference. Uh, they, rather than sitting humbly under the word of God, they just say, Oh, well, uh, I'll decide what I want to take from it and what I don't want to take from it. It's scandalous, in a sense. In a sense, it's like sitting God in your Bible study in the room and and the leader getting up and and putting a a gag around God's mouth. Saying, oh, I've had a bit of a dream. I've had a a little vision, a little bit of a thought. Let that guide you. Of, Of course, God can use those means. Of course he can. He is sovereign over everything. But we can't gag God. We need to let him speak. We need to hear his voice as he speaks clearly through his word. And that is why at this church we spend so much time dedicated in the word of God, in our Bible study groups. So that we can learn the infallible truth of God's living and active word. And so that we can actually hear him speak to us. It's the major reason why we come here on a Sunday night. Because we, we have someone who we can totally rely on in this life and the next. So we, we gather to learn from him and hear him speak. See, how do we learn to trust our Saviour Jesus Christ? It is through the infallible word of God. The truth that we read about here in verse 1. If you want to know the truth, let God speak it to you. But also notice that God uses means to make this truth known. Uh, And we see, even when the end is determined, that is the faith of the elect, of the elect. God still chooses to use means. And he uses Paul here. Look at verse 3. And at his appointed season, he brought his word to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Saviour. See, just because God has determined the end, that is, who will be saved and who will not, who will be graciously elected for salvation and who will get just as their sins deserve before judgment. Just because God has determined that end point for every individual in the whole world, it doesn't mean that he can't use Paul in his preaching, as in verse 3. 
And it also doesn't mean that he can't use you and I to declare this truth of God's word to our friends. Paul gave himself in the service of this gospel, putting his life at risk on numerous occasions. He knew God had chosen from the beginning of time who would be the elect, who would put their trust in Jesus. But you notice Paul's response? He didn't sit back. He kept on going. See, biblical uh, Christianity understands and submits to the sovereign power of God. And it delights in it. Evangelism, is telling your friends about Jesus, is so much easier when you know that God is the one who's completely in control. Because however much you stumble over your words, and I certainly do, I guess you do too, you can rest assured knowing that God will use us, even if you feel completely inadequate. The objects of Paul's mission, if you like, is to proclaim the authentic Christian faith, which includes faith, but it must include knowledge too. We must have both. We can't just know the truth in our minds. Likewise, we can't just have a gullible faith. We must be able to know the truth and essentially be able to to stake our lives on it. So we've seen the authentic servant, an apostle who was appointed to teach the authentic Christian message. But that must lead to, thirdly, the authentic Christian life. This is where our belief is joined with our behaviour. Verse 1 again, Paul, the servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth, that leads to godliness. Authentic faith in, in the God of the Bible, knowing God has given us his son to die in our place on a cross, that knowledge and faith in that wonderful historical act must lead to godly living. The true gospel in someone's life will always show itself, always, in good works. Of course, that cannot save you, but they are an indicator. Good works, godly living is a great indicator of that saving faith and that true understanding of the gospel. And Paul wants the Christians in Crete to know that their lives, the way they live their lives, matters Hugely. Firstly, it matters because as they live amongst the the Cretans, these lazy, gluttonous uh, liars, um, it it will make a big difference. They will be commending Jesus to to their neighbours. Their godly living, their good works will be appreciated and admired. There's something so distinctive, isn't it? And Sounds a bit feminine, but you know, it's really beautiful to see someone living in a godly and distinctive way. And it draws people to ask questions. Why did you make that decision? Why did you live that way? Of course, no, no Christian is perfect, are we? But there's no reason from the Bible to consider ourselves a Christian if our lives do not demonstrate saving faith and knowledge work out in this godliness. But our faith and knowledge, as we see in verse 2 at the end there, rests on the hope of eternal life. Here we see Paul's balance. It it goes throughout so many of his letters. Uh, That balance between the here and the now, and also the what is to come in eternity. 
It's a balance, if you like, between ethics, the way that we live now, and our eschatology, theological terms, but what we do now and what is to come. Basically, it means that balancing life today and our expectations for eternity. If we focus too much on our lives today, and all we hope for is in this life, I want this, I hope for that, and so on. If that is all we hope for, then we can very easily lose perspective and the security that we have in our hope for eternity. The Christian life must be concerned with today, absolutely. But it also must be balanced with an understanding and a hope for eternity to come. Of course, our hope in Christ now changes life now because it speaks to us of the eternal life to come. Therefore, how we live ought to be in the light of what is to come. Christians, as it says there in verse 2, rest on on the hope of eternal life. So today, you see, right now, at this moment, we can rest assured and be secure that Christ's death has brought us an end in this life, but not an eternal end. One that will last for eternity with him in glory. What does it look like, though? I, I guess it means that we shouldn't put all our hope in what we are doing today. Maybe that a career, a relationship. But likewise, we should not abandon all hope for today. But in self-sacrificial giving of oneself for God in this world, well, that should be the norm of Christian living. Why? What's that rooted in? The certainty of our eternal lives with him. The authentic servant apostle was appointed to teach to what? The authentic Christian faith. But that must lead to a balanced, authentic Christian life. Resting on that hope of eternity today and for tomorrow. Belief aligned with behaviour. But the church in Crete, I suppose like God's church in Earlsfield, have... Nothing unless the authentic creator and all-powerful God is the founder of our faith. The giver of this truth and knowledge. The basis of our hope. Which is why in the, the end of this introduction to this letter, Paul reminds his readers of the authentic Christian God. We see in verse 2, I'm going to scoot through this very quickly to finish. But you look in verse 2, he displays his character in that God cannot lie. In contrast, of course, to the, the lying Cretans in verse 12. And I guess in contrast to us a little bit. He's all-knowing and the eternal one for, for, for everything um, we have through faith and knowledge in him was, if we see there, was promised before the beginning of time. But God in his kindness has, in, um, in his time, his, verse 3, has appointed a season. He, he has brought his word to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Saviour. In the end, what Paul does here in verse 3 brings his argument in kind of full circle. The sovereign God has entrusted Paul with the gospel message and with God's command and authority. And he has increased the faith and the knowledge which leads to godliness and rest in the secure, eternal hope. God's character is for all to see and so we can rest knowing that we are right to rely not on ourselves but on the sovereign, all-knowing, trustworthy God. There is no other way to know this message of a saviour 
but trusting in the one who's revealed it clearly through his word, the Bible. If we're going to have a real hope, its basis must be on our creator, sovereign Lord, who has revealed himself through his apostles and now through his word and by his spirit. So the authentic servant apostle was appointed to teach the authentic Christian faith. That must lead to that balanced, authentic Christian life, but it's all founded in the kindness and the grace of the authentic Christian God of the Bible. So we ask to finish. Do we profess God in word and deny him in deed? Are we that hypocrite we mentioned at the beginning, having faith in God but no distinctive godly behaviour? Well, Paul gives a lovely little demonstration that he is not that in verse 4. That he is someone whose faith has worked itself out in a godly life. Just a few years before, Paul was being a very esteemed Jew. And we've described Titus, who is a Gentile. Do you know how they describe Jews? Describe Gentiles as dogs. But now transformed by his knowledge of God and his faith in Christ, with hope in his heart, he lives out his faith, Paul does, and look what he calls Titus. Not a dog, but my true son. And so he ends this lengthy introduction with grace and peace at the end of their verse 4. From God the Father and Christ Jesus our Saviour. He uses the conventional Greek greeting there of grace That is unmerited favour from God. And he uses peace, shalom, uh, the Hebrew there, greeting. That is the reconciliation between God and his people, which only grace can affect. Why this greeting? Well, I guess so that Titus, his dear son, and that we too might remember that the sovereign creator God has showered us with his unmerited favour in the giving of his son which has brought us peace, shalom, with God. If we have put our faith in his Saviour's death. What does that look like day to day? Well, it's not a life where behaviour and belief are separated, but rather a life lived out, growing in faith, yet born of a growing knowledge of God, found in his word and exercised in a godly life, full of hope. Today, tomorrow, and forevermore. So don't be a hypocrite. Hear the authentic servant of God, the Apostle of Christ, Paul. Know and believe the authentic Christian faith. Love the authentic, uh, live the authentic Christian life. And trust in the authentic Christian God of the Bible. And grace and peace will be with you forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I guess all of us have portions of our life which we wince when we think um, of how we behave. It seems so distant from what we believe to be true in the, the gift of your Son, the Lord Jesus. So as Christians, help us to root those parts of our lives out now. To to bring them before your word and for them to be refined. Help us to make godly decisions so that we're not living as hypocrites but rather as godly servants of you who can proclaim your message with authenticity and compassion to the world around us. 
We do that because we are utterly sure and utterly certain of what you have achieved for us through your Son. And we know and we are so comforted by the fact that grace and peace will be with us forevermore. Amen. I hand over Nathan, uh, but I'm sorry, I have to go. Great, well, if you'd like to grab all your services again, we're going to uh, sing two songs.